Yes, Frontier Church. What I want to do in this podcast is help you answer the question, what do I do once I identify a personal sin? Now, this last Sunday when I was preaching on identifying and mortifying sin as one dimension of the practice of self-denial, I talked a lot about how to identify sin. It's a community project. Right, that's the example I gave. It's a community project. We we need the outside input of others in order to see ourselves clearly, and that requires us asking other people that we're close with hard questions about life. Questions like, do you see any sin in my life right now? <laughs> that's a tough question. How do I identify sin? I had a lot to say about that on Sunday. What I did not do well on Sunday was help give our church a strategy for putting that sin to death after you identify it. And the truth is that answering this question about how to put sin to death, answering this question honestly means I probably shouldn't answer this abstractly, but to be as helpful as possible, I probably need to give an answer to this question personally. (laughs) And that means I'm going to have to give you a level of specificity in my strategy for putting sin to death that you may or may not find helpful in your walk with Christ. So, hey, if my strategy of fighting against sin is something that you want to implement in your life, great. If my strategy simply becomes fodder for you thinking about your own strategy for putting sin to death, great. If my strategy is unhelpful for you, great. Forget about it and keep doing your thing with Jesus. But what do you do once you identify a sin in your life? So as Christians, we need to be committed to putting sin to death. And to put our sin to death, we need the help of other faithful brothers and sisters who we trust and who share life with us to help us see our sin when we can't see it. That's what's involved in in, uh, in the process of identifying sin. So let's suppose, hypothetically, that you're at a coffee shop with your disciples who are following Jesus together with you hypothetically, let's say, I don't know, at Smoky Row at 6.30 a.m. on Wednesday mornings, and your disciples have helped you through prayer and questions and input identify that you hypothetically struggle with the sin of people-pleasing. I wonder what that's like. And then after identifying the sin, the dust of the conversation settles You see your sin clearly. They see your sin clearly. It's in the crosshairs of the scope. How do you then pull the trigger and kill it? What comes next? 
Now, as you can probably gather from this example, I struggle with the sin of people-pleasing. You probably didn't even need that example to, to know that about me. And I struggle with the sin of people-pleasing for like lots of reasons, right? I grew up in a small town where everybody loved everybody. I grew up in a family where everybody loved everybody. And so I'm not used to being in environments where somebody isn't pleased, right? Environments where not everybody's happy about the decision. They feel like foreign alien idea, or they just feel like foreign areas to me, right? And so there's this people-pleasing thing that I struggle with, where I struggle to be in a room in a situation where not everybody is pleased with me. And that doesn't seem like a big deal, right? It's a pretty human thing. People struggle with people-pleasing. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal, until the Bible smacks your heart across the face. Paul in Galatians 1 says, If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. <laughs> so, so people pleasing doesn't sound like a big deal until the Bible helps you consider the scope of its effect in your life. Paul specifically makes the equivalation between trying to please man and not being able to please Christ. I've, I've just found this to be true ever since a disciple of mine brought up people-pleasing in my life. As a pastor, it, I, I have to lead and make decisions as part of a, a pastoral team, but I have to lead and make decisions for an entire organization of people. And whenever you make decisions for an entire organization of people, you are required to make decisions that not everybody likes. So, what happens when you're a people pleaser and your calling requires you to make decisions that not everybody likes. Well, there's consequences. If you don't put your people-pleasing to death, the only other option really is anxiety. You sit, you sit around during the day wondering if the decision hurts somebody's feelings. It hampers you from making the decision. At night, you stay up wondering what so-and-so thought of the decision, or in the evening, at the family dinner table, you space out, wondering who out there didn't like the decision that I made. You see how there are consequences to this? You become less present with your family. You become less present with your spouse. You become less present in prayer with Christ because you've been gripped by the fear that your decision stepped on somebody's toes. And this is why Paul says that I can't try to please everybody and be a servant of Christ. I, I hope you see my point, that sometimes we don't see the severity of our sin until the Lord reveals it in the Bible or through somebody else. Or to quote John Owen, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That's why I consider it a profound grace that somebody in my fighter group at 6.30 a.m. on a Wednesday morning had the spiritual guts in the middle of the conversation to say, Cole, you seem like the kind of guy who doesn't like to say no to anybody boom for me 
That, that was the quote that the Spirit of God used to illuminate all of this to me. It felt to me kind of like a light bright. My friend said this at the coffee table, and all of a sudden it was like it was like the flip of a switch, and this entire picture illuminated before me with dots connecting that I had never put together before. I It was like, for, you know, after this comment, I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. Like, I've never... So much of the anxiety I feel in life comes from people-pleasing, right? And all of a sudden, in one fell swoop, it was like, holy cow, I don't think I've ever done anything that's totally free from any whiff of the motive of people-pleasing. It was kind of like the x-ray example from Sunday's sermon, the x-ray example about the, the broken leg. All of a sudden, I realized that this was not a sprain. <laughs> the people-pleasing thing, I realized it wasn't a sprained ankle. It was a fracture. It was broken. It was causing me to limp everywhere in life, and it needed to be dealt with. So, (laughs) I still haven't answered the question, have I? You've identified the sin. I've identified that sin in my life. What comes next? Okay, so let's zone in really on that question now. The biblical truth is that only the Holy Spirit can put your sin to death. You need to depend entirely on the work of the Spirit, and you must not seek to put this sin to death with the flesh or with your own strength or anything like that. But what does it look like to put to death sin with the Spirit? That's a follow-up question we have to ask because, honestly, it's a very rare occasion in life, and it's a very rare occasion in the Bible for the Spirit to change things on earth by snapping His fingers in heaven. It's just not usually how the Holy Spirit works. So, we've identified sin. We know that we need the Spirit to do the work of mortifying the sin, so should we just sit around and twiddle our fingers? Well, I think the answer to that is no. I think that the Holy Spirit wants to put our sin to death through the partnership of his people, through your cooperation. And I get this from the Bible. It's, it's all, over, um, all over the Bible. For instance, when David's convicted of his sin and repents, he weeps and fasts. Or when the Ninevites in the book of Jonah are convinced of their sin, they go sackcloth and ashes and they fast. And in other words, when the Holy Spirit brings about profound conviction and helps somebody repent of their sin in the Bible, the Holy Spirit usually does that through the cooperation of, of his people. And so, this is, this is where the spiritual practice of self-denial is particularly helpful, not to atone for the sin, Not to atone for the sin. Not to atone for the sin. (laughs) You can't do that. But by stacking self-denial with repentance of sin, by stacking something like fasting with repenting of a specific sin, I have personally found that it's really helpful to help train my heart to love God more and hate my sin more. And you can stack self-denial with repentance of sin in a lot of different ways, guys. For instance, let's keep circling 
let's keep circling around the sin of people pleasing since that's a, a big deal in my life and this is one of the things I've gone to war with with the most. You could you could stack the practice of self-denial with people pleasing in a lot of different ways. For instance, you could circle a day on your calendar and you could practice a 24-hour fast while taking specific time on that day to repent of people pleasing. My guess is is that the Holy Spirit would honor that and that would be profound for you. Or you could take a smaller step, right? You could skip a meal that day and use the time of that meal time in order to repent of your people pleasing. Again, I think the Holy Spirit would honor that and use your cooperation um, to help you slay your sin um, by by the by the sword of of the Spirit. That's not what I did with my people pleasing, though. I practice self denial in a little different way because um, because <laughs> I, I because. I think that people-pleasing in my life was a lot deeper in the marrow of my bones. It was like stage four for me. So, what I did when it became clear to me that I was a slave to people-pleasing and that it was hurting my life and that it was hurting my family life and that it was dishonoring to the glory of God, what I did was a little bit different. What I did was for about three months... I made it a daily practice at the end of my work days to sit down for 15 minutes, open up my journal, and write one question at the top of the page. Where today did I cave in to people-pleasing? That's it. One question. One question at the top of the page. Where today did I cave in to people-pleasing? And after I asked that question in prayer, I would simply sit in the presence of Jesus and just wait for the Holy Spirit to illuminate a moment, a conversation, a conversation, or a decision from that day. Now, this was helpful for a couple different reasons. First, it was helpful because it made me entirely dependent on the Holy Spirit for transformation. This was not self-willed flagellation or punishment. It wasn't punishment. I wasn't joining Luther on the steps and whipping myself every step of the way, trying to whip away my sin. I was simply sitting in the presence of the one whom I love, asking an honest question that's difficult to ask, and then just being open in my spirit to his loving rebuke. Secondly, it was helpful because it made my repentance specific and not just vague. Right? The question I wrote was, where today did I cave in to people-pleasing? Not, where in general am I sinning? Right? My kids need to see me at night. If the question <laughs> I dealt with every night was, where in general do I sin? I would have to pull an all-nighter. I would never go home because that's all I could sit around and, and think about. But since my repentance was specific and not just vague, where today did I cave into people-pleasing? Um, it, it helped me target that sin more, but it also made Jesus' forgiveness feel really specific and, and not just vague. And that's also very helpful. It's like lifting weights. And again, <laughs> uh, I hate to be that dude who's like, hey, following Jesus is like lifting weights, bro. 
<laughs> but following Jesus is like lifting weights, bro. And <laughs> if you want to experience muscle growth in your life, um, in in lifting weights, you have to you have to isolate and target specific muscle groups. Not because they're more important than the other ones. It's just growth happens when you specifically isolate and target one rather than all of them. And so when you do that with your sin, it 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 helps you it helps you put your sin to death better. But it also just makes Jesus's forgiveness feel really specific and not just vague, right? He didn't just heal me in a general sense. He healed me from that wound, like the one that I can point at, this one, that wound. He healed me from that wound. So, it's super helpful for that for that reason, too. And, and third, it was helpful because I made it a practice. So, it, it wasn't just a one-off, but for three months, I made it a practice. And here's the crazy thing, guys. I did that for three months, and listen to me. There was not a single workday that went by where the Holy Spirit didn't give me an answer to that question. <laughs> That's crazy. There wasn't a single day that I arrived at the end of the day and I thought, I did it. I didn't I didn't cave in to people pleasing today. The Holy Spirit never didn't bring any motive or action or or answer or conversation to mind. And the Holy Spirit never made me feel guilty. He merely illuminated the sin in my life, empowered me to experientially receive the forgiveness of Jesus and built me up in, in the Spirit. And if you're a Christian, repentance of sin, it should always end with the good news of the gospel. Because, because of the death of Jesus, the penalty for your sin that you're battling against is gone. You're battling against a sin that cannot condemn you. And that means that what remains for you in, in, in repentance is not hell, wrath, or guilt. What remains for you is love. And I want you to notice this in your battle against sin and in your battle against the flesh. I want you to notice this. Self-denial and the practice of self-denial, whether that's saying no to sin or fasting, self-denial is not a rejection of pleasure. It's actually a way to embrace it. Because as a Christian, what you learn is that saying no to sin is actually saying yes to the joy of Jesus. And I, I do want to say something about this, because those three months of making a practice of self-denial, specifically in, in the area of people-pleasing, it didn't make me perfect, right? I, there's still... there's. There's never a day that I go through that some decision or motive isn't at least tainted by the desire to please people. We'll, you'll be battling the sin that you struggle with until glory. So those three months didn't make me per- perfect. But do you know what those three months did do? They helped me mortify my sin to a degree that it actually gave me a newfound experience of freedom. And now I look back at those three months with, with joy. And this is the last thing that I want to say about putting our sin to death in this podcast. And I know that this has probably been brief. I don't know how long I've been recording now. It's probably been longer than I think. I start talking and talking and <laughs> talking. And if you need more resources on what to do once you identify sin, John Owen, a guy that I've quoted a couple times already, he has a far more exhaustive list than mine of what to do next. He has nine instructions. Diagnose the severity, grasp the consequences, 
Be convinced of your guilt. Desire deliverance. Consider the relationship between the sin and your temperament. Avoid occasions that incite sin. Address first signs. Meditate on God's glory. Don't rush to comfort. Those are Owen's nine. If you want something way more exhaustive, just type in John, John Owen's nine instructions to kill sin. They're super exhaustive if you need something a little bit deeper than what I've given us today in this podcast. But I do want you to see this as as we bring this podcast to a close. One of the most important things is that we put our sin to death with faith, believing that the practice of self-denial has a dependable metaphysical shape to it. I know that's a mouthful, But what I mean is that self-denial has a repeatable, dependable pattern or shape to it. And the pattern is this. We often look forward to practicing self-denial, whether that's fasting or going to war with sin. We often look forward to practicing self-denial with dread, and then we look back at it with joy. So whenever you identify a sin in your life and you know that you need to go to battle with it, you're going to look forward to self-denial with dread, but you will look back at it with joy. And the reason why this is the basic shape of it is because the practice and habit of sin has the opposite metaphysical shape. Unlike unlike self-denial, which we look forward to with dread and look back to enjoy, we look forward to sin with joy and we look back at it with dread. We see this in Genesis, like the first example. The apple promised joy, but delivered death. And what do we see when we look at the cross? The cross seemed to promise Jesus death, but it ultimately delivered joy. And this is part of the reason why Jesus instructs us to practice fasting without disfiguring our face or acting gloomy. Don't pretend like you're doing this because you're so tough, bro. You're doing this for the joy of Jesus. You're denying yourself. You're not denying your joy. Know that. Know this. Know that there's a dependable metaphysical shape to self-denial. And let this knowledge empower you to battle against your sin with more courage, more faith, and more joy in God. Love you guys, and I will see you Sunday.